listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Morning, church. It's good to be with you guys today. I, uh, I got the privilege this weekend of hanging out with our students on their spring retreat. So I am dead right now. Uh, this is going to have to be a good sermon because if it gets boring, I will fall asleep even though I'm the one up here. Uh, no, I actually think, I think it's divine providence that, that God had me spend uh, essentially 35 hours in North City with our teenagers right before he had me preach this text. Because uh, it's going to get a little fiery today, if you guys are okay with that. Um, <laughs> uh, like, for real, though, like, I don't know, like, you might... Try and like, like after this, there might be a couple phone calls with people like, Jeff, is it cool if you stay and Sam goes to India? I was not too pleased with the fruit of this morning. Uh, no, for, so if you didn't know, our students spent this weekend doing their spring retreat um, up in North City at a place called Mission St. Louis. If you're not a St. Louis native, North City is the part of St. Louis you don't hang out with with teenagers. Uh, so so that's, that's what we did. If you see um, some teenagers in the room who look like they just desperately need sleep and have drink, had way too much sugar to eat in the last three days, uh, you know why. Ask them about poverty. Uh, they, they have stuff they can tell you about that. If you see like six adults that actually look dead, uh, it's because they went to go hang out with the kids. It really was. It was such, it was such a cool weekend. You guys are going to hear more about Mission St. Louis in the coming months. That's one of the one of the organizations that we partner with. You hear us talk about the Good Neighbor Initiative, which is something we do through our connection with Metro Baptist Association. The Good Neighbor Initiative speaks into two specific ministries. One is Oasis International, where we serve refugees in St. Louis, and the other is Mission St. Louis, which is a ministry dedicated to empowering and revitalizing the hurting parts of our city. Uh, and so we got to hang out in this old YMCA uh, in the JVL neighborhood off North Grand, across the street from old Sportsman's Park where, uh, where, where the Cardinals used to play. Um, so we, we got to hang out there, and it was, it was really, really, really cool. It was a really good weekend. Um, we spent time talking about God's heart for justice, God's desire to free the oppressed, the fact that the gospel um, speaks freedom to those who are hurting. Uh, and everything was going really, really good until about two hours before our retreat was done, and someone, someone, someone <laughs> set off a fire extinguisher inside the church van. So earlier when Craig was talking about how God sends things to help grow you, about 10 o'clock last night when he comes to pick up the church van, and I'm like, listen, Craig, <laughs> I know this has to be packed full of everything for church in the morning, and you're about to do that at 10 o'clock, but there's a, an extinguished fire extinguisher in front of the van. So uh, maybe give Craig a hug too. <laughs> oh, uh, for real though, it was great. Um, Seriously, seriously, ask, ask a student about poverty. Ask him about North St. Louis. Ask him what, what God is doing in our city because it's, it's cool. It's something we want to be a part of. It's something uh, I'm, I'm actually really proud of our students for leading out on that, for, for setting a pace for our church to actually speak up about um, the hurts and the needs in our community. So uh, we're continuing on in Mark today. If you don't know, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for a while. We're starting in Mark chapter 3 today. We're going to be reading uh, the first six verses, the first story in Mark 3. 
Um, so you can, you can go ahead and turn there, um, and we're going to jump straight into it. Uh, th- this, this text is, is, for me, a timely text. This is something that um, weighed on me this week as, as I was preparing to spend this weekend with our students and thinking that I had to get up early and preach this right after. Um, I think it'll be good for us. If you don't have a Bible today, uh, we want to make sure those are available to you. We have house Bibles around the room. You can literally just raise your hand or poke your neighbor and someone will get you a Bible. We really care about the importance of God's Word here at Red Tree, and we want to make sure you have access to the Word. If you don't own a Bible, please just grab one of those with the least amount of coffee stains and just take it home. We would love for that to be a gift for you. Or honestly, just talk to one of our pastors and we will make sure you have a copy of God's Word. Uh, we, we care about that. So we're in Mark 3, starting in the first verse. I'm going to read this for us. Uh, the first verse of the third chapter of the Gospel according to Mark tells us this. Again, he entered the synagogue and the man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord to us today. So the hymn in this story is Jesus. I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> so we're, we're reading the story of Jesus. And if you've been with us over the last month, you know that this story is the culmination of a series of stories. Mark does this often where he puts these short, really quick stories uh, in succession so that you will interpret them through the lens of each other. And so Mark chapter 2, leading into this passage, has this progression of just story, 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 story. And in each story, we see a rising, building conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Jesus is as established in his ministry as a traveling rabbi at this point. He's kind of based out of Capernaum, a city in northern Palestine in the section called Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee, right on, right on, the, right on the shore there. And he's spreading out over Galilee and coming back and preaching this message. You can read his message in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. I reference this each week, but it's worth referencing. His message is summarized by Mark as, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is traveling around Galilee proclaiming this message. God is doing something new. God is doing something. Stop what you're doing and be a part of it. Don't think, don't weigh it out, don't chew on it. Stop what you're doing and be a part of this kingdom. Repent and believe now. This is Jesus' ministry up to this point. He, he backs this up by doing all sorts of supernatural miracles that get people, as they would, riled up, and they're listening to his message. And so what ends up happening is the religious leaders of the day, they begin to check this out. You see, the thing we have to remember is that the Pharisees, we kind of make them, paint them as the bad guys in the Gospels, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. 
But, but we kind of paint them as the bad guys. But the thing you have to remember, this, this religious party, very small, right? Like a very small percentage of the Jewish population, but they carried huge sway because of their authority in the rabbinic and in the synagogue system. These guys really passionately cared about God's people and about God and His glory. They, they saw their current state as a repressed people, as a great injustice. And they actually longed for God to send His Messiah as prophesied and save His people. And so when this rabbi starts traveling around and teaching, the kingdom is at hand, it is now, repent, believe, and He's doing miracles, they rightly get a little excited. And they start sending people out to figure out what's the deal with this Jesus guy. Could he be the one? And what we have in this progression of stories over the course of Mark 2 is over and over, the religious leaders come up to Jesus and they're essentially kind of going, is is this guy it? And they're kind of looking and judging and asking questions. And Jesus does not fit their mold. He doesn't fit what they expect. They have all these lists of parameters. This is what the Messiah will be. Does Jesus fit my 15 bullet point list for Messiah? And Jesus just looks at the 15 bullet point list and he goes, nope, that's not me. That's not not what I'm doing, but the kingdom is at hand. You should repent and believe. And it creates this building tension where they can't actually say anything to Jesus because he's healing people. He's doing miracles. And yet, he's not acting the way they expect the Messiah to act. And so it's frustrating. All of that building tension comes to a head in this story. Jesus walks into a synagogue on the Sabbath. He walks into his church for the weekend gathering. And it's easy to assume at this point, it doesn't say, but it seems to make sense that he's in the synagogue at Capernaum, kind of his home base, or at least close to it. He, he walks into this weekend gathering, and there's a guy there with a withered hand, a man who is crippled in his hand, right? And it says, the minute Jesus walks in, everyone's kind of like, what's he going to do? And there's this tension in the room, is Jesus going to heal this guy on the Sabbath, Right? And so everyone's kind of watching and seeing what's going to happen. And Jesus gets upset, right? He gets angry. He calls this guy up in front of everyone. He calls out the religious leaders. Then he heals the guy. And then they get mad and they go out and plot to kill him. Right? That's, that's basically the story. Jesus shows up to this, this weekend gathering. He, he sees a guy there who needs help. He, he poses this honestly, really simple ethical dilemma to the religious leaders. Then he does a miracle, then they get mad, and they go plot his murder. That's, that's our story. And, and I want to point out a couple things for us here today. I think, if I'm being real with you guys, I think there's a hard word for us in this text that I think we need to sit together as a family and chew on it. And so what I'd like to do is let's, let's kind of retell this story with some, with some context around it, pull out some nuance of what's going on, and then we'll, we'll just land on an unpleasant discussion together, and, and, then, we'll, and then we'll go home. <laughs> Sound like a plan? So, so he steps into the weekend gathering, and, and Jesus is upset. He's, he's angry, right? This is an interesting turn in the story. Up until this point, I don't know if you guys have noticed this. There's probably not a reason for you, too. If you read through Mark 2, 
really, like, you can see some frustration in the interactions, but for the most part, it's confusion and questioning. The Pharisees are going, what are you doing? This is not what a Messiah does. And Jesus is like, yes, it is. And that's, that's basically what's happening up to this point. But here we have this transition to open anger, right? And I think it comes back to this. This poor guy is suffering and hurting, and he is a pawn, right? Like Jesus walks in, and I want you to, I want you to just envision this for a moment. Here's a dude who is physically crippled, who is suffering, who is hurting, and a guy walks into his church service who has the ability to supernaturally heal and restore him, and his shepherds, his pastors, his religious leaders are more excited at the opportunity of tripping up this rabbi than they are at the prospect of him being healed. Can you see that? What blind guides. That's detestable. You see, these men, these men are anointed to be shepherds of this group of people. That's how, that's how the synagogue leaders took their responsibility. They're, they're shepherding God's people. They're seeking to draw them in line with the teaching of God that, that, that God's wrath might be removed from Israel and the Messiah might come. And in this moment, in this moment, they are more concerned with essentially playing a social political power game with this other rabbi than they are with the very real human suffering of their congregant. That makes Jesus angry. And really quick, guys, if you don't hear any, some of you in this room, this is the only thing you need to hear today. That's good that that made Jesus angry. That should make someone angry. You'll oftentimes hear pastors say things like, man, if you want to grow in your faith, you need to learn to love the things Jesus loves. That's very true. You also need to learn to hate the things Jesus hates. Jesus hates this. This angers him to see this. To see, to see shepherds in the name of God hurting and harming and ignoring and ostracizing God's very child, made in his image, precious, valued, loved by him, hurting, suffering under the curse. This angers Jesus, and that sort of thing should anger us. It should. Jesus is not pleased with this. I think it's important to point out, too, that, that Jesus escalates this situation, right? He walks in, he sees what's going on. Uh, in, I, know, I know I'm breaking my own rule here, but in the other gospel tellings of the story, it says he knew, he knew what they were doing. And so what does he do? He calls this guy out and makes him walk up front. I don't know if you have any friends or family that struggle with some form of of crippling or, or deformity, but as a general rule, they don't like to have attention drawn to themselves in crowds. And so Jesus calls this guy up in front of everyone, which at first you're kind of like, what the heck, Jesus? But here's the reality. That poor guy is already the center of attention. Right? That, that poor guy has already been called out in front of this whole church, and everyone is, what's he going to do? So Jesus, being Jesus, and did I mention he's a little mad, he, he calls out the withered elephant in the room. 
He's like, come here, man. Come here. Come here. Come on up here. Hey. Hey, you guys. On the Sabbath, do you think it would honor God if we hurt someone or helped them? How about if you saved a life or killed it? What do you think about that? Right? Like you can kind of vision, envision the scene. And how do they respond? They're silent. They're silent. That is cowardice. Oh my goodness. Here is this man, this congregant that is entrusted to them that, that they are seeking to shepherd. And Jesus asks them, essentially, should I help this guy? And they have no answer. I want to tell you something, church. Those men may have been silent in that moment, but that silence was incredibly loud to that man. It, it spoke volumes to him of who he was and what his value was and how he was thought of and considered in that congregation. And if that doesn't give you a pit in your stomach, you are not reading this text. They're silent in the face of, if we're honest, an incredibly simple ethical dilemma. Does it honor God on the Sabbath to do good or evil? I don't know. Let me think about that for a moment. <laughs> I was going to bring it and read it to you guys, but I was half awake this morning and I forgot. There's a scene in the very beginning of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. If you've never read that, you should read it. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a story he tells to illustrate a point where this group of people from hell get on a bus and go take a holiday in heaven. And uh, they're hanging out there. And, and the book is broken up into this series of dialogues between uh, ghosts who are, who, are, who are people from hell and saints who are people from heaven where the saints are trying to convince the ghosts you should stay here. And the ghosts are like, ah, I don't really like this place. And it's, it's, it's a whole interesting story. You can read it in like one sitting. It's like 100 pages. You should, but there's a scene early on in the book where two Anglican ministers meet, one a saint and one a ghost. And the whole time, the saint, the, this, this pastor who's in heaven is going, oh my gosh, brother, you, you need to stay here. You need to stay. This is wonderful. The king is here. This is, this is heaven. And, and, and they go back and forth. And, and, and the, the ghost is essentially trying to like get him into these weird theological debates. And he's trying to pick apart doctrines and go, yeah, but truly what is heaven, brother? And he's like, no, heaven is when you're with Jesus. He's, he's over there. You should stay here. And he's like, yeah, but what does that mean to be with someone? It means you're with them. He's right over there. Come here. And he's like, yeah, but I mean, isn't that really like a spiritual reality that your soul... No! It means you repent and you believe what he said and then you go hang out with him. And the guy's like, yeah, but what is repent? And they go back and forth and back and forth. And, and finally the guy, the, the, the saint just goes, I just, I just want you to be with Jesus because that's, that's all that matters. And the guy's like, you know, this has been a really good discussion. I've actually got to get going I've got this Bible study and like theological study that I do down in hell. I don't want to be late to it, but thanks so much for chatting with me. This was really intellectually stimulating. And then he leaves, right? This is, this is the kind of ethical question you should not have a problem answering, right? There's, there's nuance to be had here. Really? Does it honor God to do good or evil on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? 
That's a simple one. Do good, save love. Yeah, that honors God. But they're silent. They have nothing to say to it. And here's the reality. There is a nuance to it. Because essentially what these guys are saying is, God says don't work on the Sabbath. So just wait. Hang out. Sit through the gathering and wait. And then when the sun goes down, then heal the guy. That'd be awesome. Because then you've honored God and you've healed the guy. And that seems like something a Messiah would do. Right? Seems like a simple answer. Problem solved. Apparently not. Apparently not. Jesus puts more pressure on the discussion. He says, no, 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 no. To delay, to wait, to, to put off good and healing and help until later, that is comparable to murder. Now that's a heavy thought for us, right? That Jesus essentially says here, do you want me to heal this guy? There's only one answer to that, yes. If you have any other answer, any other answer, no matter how nuanced or theological it is, you might as well be committing murder. Don't wait. Don't intellectualize it. Don't theologize it. This guy is suffering. He's right here. I can heal him. Right? It says Jesus looked at them with anger and that he was grieved at their hardness of heart. I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures of our sweet Jesus that we get in the Gospels. Because he's, he's such a complete person, right? Jesus is somehow in this moment angered at the injustice and the hurt and the suffering of his child who he made in his image, who he loves and he cares for deeply. You see, Jesus is angered at this because he loves this man. He loves this man who is suffering but he's also grieved at their hardness of heart because he loves these men. He loves them. And he longs for them to be good shepherds. He longs for them to to be a part of his kingdom. And their hardness of heart grieves him. The literal Greek word there means, means he's moved to pity by sympathy. He feels bad for these guys. And so in the same moment, Jesus is angry out of his jealous and affectionate love for this hurting child, his creation. And he is moved to sympathy and pity and sorrow for his hard-hearted, stubborn children who are standing in his presence and missing him. Oh, 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 our Jesus is so sweet to us. He's so sweet to us. How, how good is our God that, that he, he is like us, that He has been tempted and tried in every way, and He actually knows. He actually cares. He doesn't, he doesn't pick one side in this admittedly terrible situation, that He actually is moved by His love for everyone in the room. How beautiful a Savior we have, that He knows our weakness, that He has been tempted by everything that has tempted us from the bitterness and anger and lonely and isolation of a hurting man who's had injustice done to him to the bitter, hard-hearted numbness of a religious leader. He's been tempted in every way, and yet he is without sin. And our God redeems. How beautiful a picture. We see Jesus 
moved to anger and moved to sorrow at the same time. And his response is, stretch out your hand. And the man stretches out his hand and he is healed. Right? And he's healed. And he's restored. And immediately, the religious leaders go out and begin to plot his death with the Herodians. There's a couple things we should know about that. If you don't know much about the Herodians, yeah, no one does. That's very normal. <laughs> this, this group of people, it's another, another group that, that held some of the political, social sway and power in Jesus' day. Essentially, uh, what, what, what you, you have to understand way more about what's going on in Palestine at this time than we really have time for in this context. But to give you the short version, when you talk about the Pharisees, you're talking about the hyper-conservative, we would say fundamentalist, religious wing of Judaism. They control most of the rural expressions of spirituality amongst the Jewish people. The synagogues away from the cities, the traveling rabbis. You have the Herodians, who are essentially Hellenized Jews. They've accepted Greek, Greek culture. These, these are people who see King Herod, the, the Jewish king who's been put into authority by the Greeks, they see him as a Messiah figure. A way to kind of summarize the Herodian worldview is, is, is that you look at the Pharisees and say, they say, we need to get back to Torah and we need to just live by Torah and that will bring God's pleasure on us. And the Herodians kind of say, man, Torah is a 2,000-year-old book. It doesn't really make sense. That's things, time has come and gone. God has given us Herod and he's making our country better. Let's just embrace that. And it's actually true. Herod did a lot of really cool things for Palestine. He, he built the second temple. He got plumbing into Jerusalem. He did a lot of things. He, he built some port cities that made Palestine an important province in those things. But the thing you need to get for this story is that you could not have more strange bedfellows than the Pharisees and the Herodians. The, these, these folk are diametrically opposed theologically and socially. You have the Pharisees saying, separate from the world, be conservative, read and obey Torah, do nothing else, don't worry about anything but that. And you have the Herodians saying, listen, it's a Roman world, we might as well be Roman people. If we do that well, we can have God's blessing, right? Like opposite people. And yet this is something about Jesus's message that is so dangerous that these two groups are brought together to plot his demise, right? You think about whatever the heck Jesus was saying was so diametrically opposed that they were jumping across the aisle to figure out a bipartisan plan to get rid of this guy. That's interesting. And it brings out a couple really important points for us in this text. The first one is this. Jesus is in complete control of this situation. I don't know if you guys see that, right? Like, Remember, like this, this, this escalation of frustration up until this point has been that. An escalation of confusion and misunderstanding and frustration. Jesus chooses to light off this powder keg, right? He walks into this gathering and just goes, I am done with this. We're doing this right now. I'm going to call you out in front of the whole congregation. Let's work this out right now. Jesus, in his anger actually instigates this aggression. There are a myriad of ways he could have handled the situation differently to avoid the confrontation, but he does it on purpose. He, he publicly puts these guys into a corner. 
They have no choice but to respond. Now, you might argue, a good response is not plotting the dude's murder, but, but that's what happens. Jesus puts them in a situation where now they have to do something. They have to speak against him. They have to push back on whatever he's teaching. It is ironic, by the way, that, that Jesus, he gives this easy moral challenge to these guys, right? Should you do good or does God honor by good or evil on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill? And they're silent. And then Jesus heals a guy and they immediately leave and plot his murder, doing exactly what he said, right? Should you save a life or kill someone? They're like, hold on just a second. How do we kill this guy? Like, there's a little bit of irony there, right? But, but the, thing, the thing we need to see here is that Jesus set this up. He played these guys. He, he put them in this position. And the reason for that is very simple. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he came to earth for one reason. To go to the cross. To go to the cross and to die for sins. The thing we have to remember, beloved, is that the cross of Jesus was Jesus' plan from day one. It was not the plan of his persecutors or his enemies. It was his plan. And he pursued it in obedience, in loving, submissive obedience. He set the stage for his own crucifixion. And he will continue to do that. As you read through Mark, you'll see one of Mark's main themes is that Jesus is not just the Messiah the way people thought the Messiah would be. He is the very Son of God. And this crucifixion, this death, this resurrection has been his plan since eternity past. So Jesus sets this up. He, he sets the pathway that will lead him to the cross. And he joyfully walks down it. Obediently walks down this path. It's, it's crazy, right? Like I think, of, I think of Paul's words to Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus has a very specific intention here. He's instigating these guys to violence, knowing their hard-heartedness, which puts his sorrow and his grief for them in a whole different context, right? Where he's standing there going, man, I know what you're going to do. I know what you're, where this is going. And that breaks his heart. Breaks his heart that his people would miss him. John says it in the beginning that he, he was amongst his own. They did not know him. Man, Jesus is sorrowed by this, but he is also very firm in this. The other thing we need to talk about is, is, is the silence. It's, it's the cowardice of these religious leaders. See, Jesus, Jesus sets a stage here when, when, he kind of, when, he, when he forces their hand on this that speaks very boldly very boldly to the kingdom life, right? He poses an ethical question that should be incredibly simple to answer. And there is no answer. There's silence. Beloved, this is the path of silence. This is the unavoidable fruit of a heart that values theology over the God it seeks to describe. This is what comes of a heart that values right religious practices over the people that the practice is supposed to connect to the love of God. Why is that man in the synagogue on the Sabbath? To worship. To be connected to the promises of God. The promises of a God who says, I love you, I will fix this. 
And what is he when he's there? He is a pawn in a game. That is not right. It's not right. And when they're called on it, what do they say? They say nothing. Beloved, Jesus, Jesus speaks very bluntly and very boldly into silence. These blind guides were so concerned with preserving their theological heritage and their social power that they missed the kingdom of God. And I I get it, right? Like that was them, that was then. We can see that with clear eyes. Hindsight is 2020. But beloved, the silence should be a warning. If you ever find yourself in a position where you hesitate in answering an easy ethical dilemma as presented by the kingdom, then you are on a bad road. You're on a bad road. Is it right to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Well, yeah, listen, dude, I get what you're saying, but the thing you have to understand, no, no. There's no need to further explain that question. Does it honor God to do good or evil on the Sabbath? In a broken and cursed world longing for the restoration and recreation given by its Savior, we must never pause in our answers. May we never be a silent people. Never. Beloved, this this is true and this is real and we must speak into this. I get it. The world is a complicated place. Solutions are not simple. Ask someone at Mission St. Louis how you solve poverty in the inner city. There is no simple answer. But when we are presented with simple ethical dilemmas, our answers must be simple. Is it wrong to kill children before they have the chance to be born? Yes! Yes! Is it, is it wrong for children to die in a school? Yes. Is it, is it wrong for, for people to be mistreated, to not have a chance to actually further themselves and care for their family? Yes. Is it wrong for people to be hungry? Yes. That is wrong. Is it, is it okay? Should, should people die of curable diseases because they don't have enough money to pay for the health care? No! That is a simple question. No! People should not die of preventable illnesses. People should not starve on a planet that makes enough food. People should not fear for their lives when they go to school. People should not be shot and killed because of a misunderstanding during a traffic stop. These are simple truths. How many of us pause when we answer those questions? Because we know, right? We're not really asking that question. That question is guising this question, and you're really trying to make a political point. Fine! Let them make a political point. Beloved, God hates injustice. God hates abortion. God hates racism. God hates poverty. God hates gun violence. That is true. 
You cannot argue with that. If you have any respect for this as the revealed Word of God, that is the truth. We worship a God who abhors the curse. And anything that that curse has brought about in this world is something He wants to destroy. May we never be silent in the face of those questions. I get it. The answer is nuanced. Okay, the answer is nuanced. It's still wrong. He still hates it. Well, it's not that simple. Like there's, there's social structures in place and we have to move within the I get it. It's still wrong. God still hates it when people are shot to death. For any reason. God hates it when innocent people die because a computer-controlled bomb was programmed incorrectly. Yeah, but you want to... No! God still hates that. That is simple. Beloved, may we never be silent. May we never be silent. But what do you actually do with that? Right? Right? What is, what, what is there beyond just like, okay, yeah, God hates that. I have no clue what to say after that. Yeah, no. Spend a weekend with Mission St. Louis and start asking questions about how you, as a wealthy county person, can help alleviate poverty in our, in our city. After about your 18th failed idea, you're going to be like, I have no clue what to do. <laughs> I have no clue how to handle that stuff. Yeah, I know. It's complicated. It's nuanced. It's crazy. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We worship a God who created a world that was perfect. We worship a God who designed a system where there was no poverty, where there was no murder, where there was no sorrow, where there was no suicide, where there was no suffering, where there was no racism, where all those things did not exist. And beloved, we are marching forward day by day toward a recreation. When Christ will return, He will claim what is His, and every tear will be wiped from every eye, and all suffering will be made to not exist. Where poverty will be gone, where the curse will be crushed, where where the evil of this world will be cast into complete and utter destruction. The scripture says that when God takes the curse and casts it into destruction, the smoke of that will rise and rise and rise because he has utterly destroyed it. The scripture tells us Jesus will take death itself and cast it into destruction. We we worship a God who has every intention of completely and utterly destroying the curse. So when we say, yeah, that's wrong, what's the solution? Well, Jesus is going to return and make all things anew. And I know that someday that won't exist. I know that God hates violence. I know that he hates it when people get shot and killed. And I know someday he's going to recreate our world so that people don't. What do you do right now? That's a great question. 
That's where things get nuanced. That where, that's where you can start debating and you can start talking about policy and you can start talking about activism and you can start talking about volunteering. That's cool. But beloved, we have to start with the kingdom. We start with the kingdom. May we, may we never be so blinded by our social and political and religious ideologies that we are silent in the face of an easy question. May that never be us. Beloved, you must know silence is a privilege. We, We are given the option of silence and a lot of people aren't. And you must know our silence screams to this world. It screams to this world. When we avoid issues because they are complicated and nuanced and they may push our political buttons, we are screaming to the world, God will not fix that. That is truth. Our silence declares the apathy of our God. Beloved, our God is not apathetic. Our God cares very much. Our God loves more deeply than we can know or imagine. Our God actually cares about the curse. Our God actually actually came to earth and suffered and lived as a human and, and died a brutal, torturous death that the curse might be destroyed. Our God is anything but apathetic. He is fully and completely engaged in the restoration and recreation of His beloved creation. You know that you are the beloved of our Jesus. That He actually cares for you. That He actually cares for this world. That He is actively seeking to recreate it. Beloved, may may we pour ourselves into this. In their book, When Helping Hurts, I can't remember the two guys' names. The book's called When Helping Hurts. These two sociologists and missionaries, they put poverty in this construct from from Genesis uh, 2 and 3. They say, um, poverty is is when when you need something you don't have the power to get. When you need something you don't have the power to get. And before the curse, there was no poverty. Everything we needed, we had. And after the curse... Our relationship was broken in so many ways that we experience all kinds of poverty. We experience a poverty of resources because the curse has broken the earth, and even though the earth is capable of meeting all of humanity's needs, those resources are not distributed in a way that make them available to everyone. Humanity's relationship to the creation is broken, and so there's a poverty of resources. We don't know as much about that one. There's a poverty of spirit because God created humanity to be engaged with him, to be to draw from him, to receive their life from him. And the curse broke that connection like a phone that's been unplugged from the wall. The battery is draining. There's a poverty of spirit where our souls call out and long to be united with their creator, and yet sin has made a separation in that. There's a poverty of self where beautifully, divinely designed creatures made in the image of God are broken and fallen and decay and die. And we do not understand who we actually are as God's beloved. 
There's a poverty of community where man's relationship with, with each other has been broken. And, and there can be such things as apathy and numbness and anger and bitterness. It's easy to call out poverty of resources, right? Because we can tell the difference between North St. Louis and Baldwin. It's easy to call that out. But we need to understand something. The curse means that all of us are impoverished. And, and we may not have a poverty of resources, but our numbness to those who do is an expression of our poverty of community. That we don't actually care. When we live that way, when we answer easy questions with silence, we are living a cursed life. We are answering from the curse. We are answering out of our poverty. But beloved, there is something better than that. There is a gospel. There is a real Jesus who actually really loves the creation and is actually seeking to recreate. We can speak out of that. We can speak and we can fight to build the kingdom now. To see people truly understand who they are as, as creatures made in the image of God, truly understand who they are as creatures designed in the communal aspects of God, as, as creatures who are designed to be connected to a planet, a creation that provides enough for them, as creatures who are designed to be united with a loving God. We can fight the curse. We can speak boldly into easy truths. And we can dive neck deep into complicated, nuanced issues because people matter more than our stupid policies and theology. We can do that. We should do that. Beloved, our silence screams. Ask Dietrich Bonhoeffer what happens when the church is silent to easy questions. May we boldly, humbly, loudly declare the excellencies of the love of our sweet King Jesus. Jesus, you are good to us. You're better than we deserve. You're so sweet to us. God, may, may we be a people who are actually actually moved by your love. May we be a people who have a deep awareness of our own poverty and our own lack of ability to alleviate that, that we are so desperately in need of you to alleviate the curse in our lives. God, may that, may that awaken in us a grief and an anger and a sympathy for those who are just as impoverished as we are. And God, may we, may we dedicate ourselves to the advancement of your kingdom. May we be a people who pour ourselves fully into the truth of your love, the excellency of your love, the sufficiency of your work, the sweetness of your person. Jesus, you are making all things new. We humbly ask that you would use us in that project. You're good to us, Jesus. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.